You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Future of Asia podcast. My name is Patty Wong, and I lead McKinsey's research on the future of Asia. The following episode is adapted from our recent interactive webinar session on decoding the value and performance of corporate Asia. I am joined today by three distinct panelists, Oliver Tomby, Senior Partner Chairman of McKinsey in Asia, Chris Bradley, Senior Partner, Sydney Office, and leader of the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice in Asia, and Jonathan Wurzel, Senior Partner and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute. Now I'd like to turn it over to Oliver, who will be opening the briefing. Oliver, over to you. Thank you. Listen, everybody, I am absolutely delighted to have everybody on this uh, webinar today. Uh, about one and a half years ago, uh, we set ourselves out on a campaign called the Future of Asia. The aim of the Future of Asia is to provide a better fact base for what's happening and what the future could look like in Asia. It's to provide a little bit more nuanced perspectives on Asia overall. Um, and then at the end of the day, try to provide a holistic narrative. You know, it is not all rosy. It is all not all doom and gloom. So that's the aim of our Future of Asia campaign over the last one and a half years. We are doing several chapters. We've already released the flows in the network chapter. We've already released half of the technology chapter. Today, we're talking about Asian corporate uh, ecosystem and performance. Coming later, we're going to release sustainability in Asia, and we're going to be looking at consumers across Asia. So that's the future of Asia campaign. What we're doing today is double-clicking on trying to decode the value and the performance of corporates across Asia. These are the 5,000 largest companies in the world. 43% of those happen to be Asian. You're going to hear a few interesting things. Um, you're going to hear that sadly a, there's been a significant reduction in economic performance, economic profit of companies globally, but also specifically in Asia. You're going to hear about increasing capital intensity, you're going to hear about a large amount of the investments have gone into value-destroying sectors uh, across Asia, even though you're going to also hear that there are pockets, even in some of the lesser-performing sectors, there are some pockets of great performance. And you're going to hear about a corporate ecosystem that is, frankly, more dynamic, You know, some would say tougher, but certainly more dynamic uh, than uh, a more dynamic landscape than many other parts of, of the world. And finally, we're going to try to draw some implications for companies from, from all of this. With that short introduction, let's get started. And uh, let me hand over to Patty Wang, who has been the leader of this corporate performance work that we have done. Patty, over to you. And like Oliver mentioned, first we'll be diving into the capital paradox, followed by decoding the Asian firms then diving into looking at what exactly goes into building a resilient 21st century firm, as well as looking forward view in Asia. Finally, we'll also make sure we leave ample amount of time for Q&A. So please do make sure 
to use the Q&A functionality. And I think that's it for in terms of our opening. So why don't we jump right in and start talking about the capital paradox. Chris, over to you. Thank you. I'm going to introduce to you what we call the Global 5000. That was the basis of our analysis. We Luckily, we have a terrific database of companies and we're able to kind of understand the evolution of kind of global profit pools, kind of one firm at a time. So these are companies that in 2015 to 17 had more than 1.3 billion of revenue. 43% of these companies are Asian. And so if we look what happened in Asia, the, the big thing is revenue went from 30 to 39% of the world and invested capital went from 28 to 40%. And in fact, of that additional 28 trillion invested capital added, one dollar on every two went to Asia. And uh, of that, actually, one dollar on every three went to China. So we saw Asia playing a disproportionate role. At the same time, the number of Chinese firms in the global 5,000 doubled to 900. And, but the number of Indian firms doubled too, but to a smaller number to 142. So that's the basis of our analysis. What's the great, and, the, and it gets to the great mystery we're trying to solve, which is the mystery of disappearing profits. So going back to 2005 to 2007, the economic profit in the world uh, was quite healthy. Now, let me just very quickly do a sidebar on economic profit because not everyone measures companies this way, but we do. Economic profit is the amount of profit you have left over after you take your net operating profit, you take taxes away, but importantly, you also deduct uh, an amount for the capital that you employ. So we multiply the invested capital by the weighted average cost of capital to kind of create, well, what's a quasi return on capital that should be uh, expected or an opportunity cost of capital. So in 2005 to 2007, we're in a profit boom. The, the, the global economic profit pool was $726 billion. That meant companies were earning well above the cost of capital. But what you can see is 10 years later, um, that profit pool has all but disappeared. And so what we did was the Sherlock Holmes, what's the detective story of where did the profit go? And the answer is, well, it didn't go. North America is not the scene of the crime. You know, they managed to maintain stable, high economic profits. But you really see Europe and Asia were the cause. And, you know, Asia, nearly 50% of it there. So over this time, the, the return on invested capital in China went from 114 to 6.8%. And the, in the rest of Asia, outside of China, went from 9.1 to 7.4. So we had this real deterioration of returns over this period. The reason is capital intensity. So the returns a company earns obviously is a product of the earns and the turns. So the earns is about margins and the turns is around capital turnover. And what this chart says, let's just look at the bottom row. We'll get to the detail later. But the bottom row says that in this period, 05 to 07, to earn a dollar revenue, I needed 79 cents of invested capital. However, by the time I got to 2015 to 2017, to earn one dollar revenue, I needed one dollar and eight of invested capital. And you might be saying, hang on a minute, isn't the big trend in the world the rise of tech and the uh, virtualization and software eating the world? Yes, and that's the great mystery. In fact, the reality is intense competition constant re-platforming because of disruption, renewal of infrastructure has caused the world to become more capital intensive. And it's not just because of urbanization of China, although that played a role. It's because that every in, in every sector, the capital intensity has been increasing. And it's not just because there's more goodwill on balance sheet because of increased takeover activity, although that did grow faster. 
But net net, the story is pretty simple. Invested capital over this period globally grew at eight percent per year, and revenue grew at four point eight percent. The story is even more intense in Asia, and at the same time, the no plat margin went down from this is profit margin went globally from eight point seven to eight point four. So there was a, a a small contraction in margins, but nothing compared to the huge change in capital intensity. So if you kind of wanted to explain where did the profits go? Globally, the answer is 87% capital intensity, 13% margins. Now, in China, interesting that it's a bit more of a split story because while capital intensity did really increase in, in China, the margins went down a little bit more there. So in China, it's you know about 60% of the reduction in invested capital is because of capital intensity and about 40% because of margins. So that's the kind of the backdrop here. We've got disappearing profit pools driven by capital intensity, but the decline... Uh, in Asia has a more specific story. Now, the first big thing that you have to take out is energy and materials because 05 to 07 was the very peak, was the you know the very beginning and the, the peaking of the of of um, commodity prices as part of the super cycle as China entered the world economy. And what we saw over these 10 years is those profits all drained back as prices normalised. So that's that's one adjustment. But even once we've done that, we've still got more than half of the picture left. And that's where we get to the other two levers, which is capital allocation. Jonathan's going to go into this in more detail. But 74% of the new capital in, in um, Asia went to sectors that destroy value. And in fact, it was 80% in China, while in the US, the majority of capital went to sectors that create value. And then firm performance is, you know, in Asia, we saw a deterioration of firm performance. And what we see is there's basically slightly more representative firms in the bottom quintile of economic profit. So there's, you know, um, 24% of Asian uh, of, of Asian firms are in that bottom quintile, where, of course, you'd expect 20%. And But there's also slightly less kind of superstar firms. So 16% of Asian companies are in the top quintile of economic profit versus obviously 20% globally. So there's slightly less superstars and slightly more troubled Firms. Okay, so that's that. But so we've kind of done our Sherlock Holmes investigation, but you know it's important to understand. Okay, where did this happen? This is it is largely a China story, but nearly every geography suffered from some of the same fates. You know, Japan did better than you'd expect it to, given the, where its economy was going to, because the corporate sector there did a lot of hard work. And India remains kind of under the cost of capital, but just given the amount of companies in the global 5,000 in India, that's not enough to move the dial. So it's really a China story, um, and partic- particularly around the state-owned enterprises in China. So that's kind of the first section where we wanted to talk about, okay, the capital paradox. We've seen this explosion of investment. We've seen lots of growth, but actually at the same time, we've seen disappearing economic profits as uh, return on capital has converged below weighted average cost, cost of capital. Thanks, Patty. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. So maybe if we open out to a couple of questions. The first one would be to Jonathan. Like Chris mentioned, um, when we looked at the country breakdown, China drives a lot of the economic decline. What do you think is some of the key differences um, or factors that would cause this phenomenon? Well, as uh, Chris is uh, pointing out, we have to divide this into the global industries like energy and materials and from the the local performance and the allocation that's going on within the country. So clearly a lot of what is going on is the the role of those global sectors in a given economy and particularly in the Chinese economy that 
But no question that, you know, and we'll come on to this, that performance within the Chinese economy is also something that is driving the outcomes here. And that, you know, has something to do with state enterprises and their leading role, particularly in more capital intensive sectors. As Chris was saying that, you know, in general, we've seen more capital and less profit. So that's really where the state enterprises play. But I mean, I think there's also a positive side on this in that there are, as we'll see, some green shoots of success even in the Chinese economy, or as far as profits are going, especially in knowledge-intensive sectors. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. And maybe a question now um, to Oliver. Oliver, what do you think are some of the ways that I, companies can respond to declining EP? Well, what have you seen happen in the last um, years or so? So thank you, Patty. Listen, a couple of ways to answer this. Let me first focus on the period before coronavirus and the recent months, because I think what we were seeing I think companies were absolutely seeing this decline in economic profits. They were responding and are responding by two things. Number one, there's a continuous search for how to improve productivity, and depending on which sector we're talking about. Uh, but using technology, using digital to improve the performance, the ongoing performance to reach more customers, e-commerce, and so forth. So one is a search for how to improve productivity. The other one was just trying to find those new pockets of growth uh, in adjacent industries. And we're seeing that you know, suddenly every all, all companies were suddenly starting to look into adjacencies and crowding into, for example, the uh, e-commerce supply chain uh, became very popular, uh, being attacked in multiple industries. So we're saying look for adjacent sectors, look for growth. I think now with COVID, th those things have been intensified, but COVID has added an extra measure, which is extreme uncertainty. We just do not know where the world is going, which scenario is going to, uh, to play out. So I think companies are now really trying to, to step back and look and what we call plan ahead, do plan ahead sessions, which are the scenarios that are possible and what are the triggers and markers so that we know where we're heading and therefore that informs what we do. Wonderful. And we just had a couple more questions coming in. One around capital allocation, and I think we'll talk a bit more about this in the next section with Jonathan on, is in part of capital allocation to value destroying sectors typical of required infrastructure bills of developing countries such as China. Uh, maybe this is a really great question from the audience, and I think we'll get Jonathan, if you don't mind keeping this one in mind as you cover off decoding Asian performance. Yeah, well, let's 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 turn to that, Patty, and uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I wanted to sort of take this. We've, we've heard it from a macro economy what's going on, and a little bit from sector. I'll spend a little more time on sector, but then really turn to firms um, because I think there's a message here overall about. Um, Asian performance is while one can look at the economy and one can look at the sector, one shouldn't forget about the what's going on at the firm level, because that in many ways we think is the opportunity going forward, is that uh, firms will essentially be increasingly bucking the sector trend 
uh, and to deliver outperformance. But let's uh, let's take this one step at a time. So on the first page, uh, we can see that Asia essentially uh, allocates more capital to value-destroying sectors. So the uh, the blue sectors are 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 value destroying the black sectors are value creating at the sector uh, overall and so it's pretty clear that the value creating numbers are are lower uh, than the value destroying numbers relative to certainly to North America and relative to the world overall and so that's undisputable let's take another look on the next page as to where exactly that's happening and so here we can break it all down you know by sector by country within Asia and we can kind of start to get a bit more of a granularity about you know where is that profit uh, going and coming from. And again, black is good. So, you know, what we can see is, first of all, generally speaking, knowledge intensive industries globally are more attractive in terms of economic profit, and equally so in, in Asia. That there are some interesting standouts as we look at uh, things like financial services. If you look at China, of course, the bulk of the profitability, economic profit is in the financial services sector, which arguably reflects the unique uh, the, the characteristics, at least the characteristics of that sector and the regular and how it is regulated. Uh, and then we get into you know, a much more mixed territory, whether it's consumer uh, or uh, capital goods, and we start to see negatives. Uh, and then finally, you know, with some exceptions, like again, we can see standouts in Southeast Asia uh, around energy materials and Japan around capital goods. Uh, and you know, that, so there are, there are pockets of exceptions, but broadly speaking, as you see, on the far left, energy and materials globally, uh, this, uh, this has not been a, a good sector to be in as far as economic profit is concerned uh, over this period of time. Now, part of this is because, as we said, global, globally, something like energy and materials is a cycle, I meaning that there is a long cycle. And so when one looks at just a couple of years, one doesn't take the full picture. And so that, that is why we sort of would say anything that's because if you're heavily and overinvested, if you will, uh, in that sector, almost by definition, uh, you're going to be underperforming the global averages because you're relatively overweighted in in those longer long cycle sectors. So that is absolutely fair point, um, and that's why we try to separate that out as far as saying, okay, how does one fix Asia's uh, economic profit challenge? Okay, so that's all at the sector level. But I think what we dug a little bit deeper and we tried to look at firms. What we saw was 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 that there is actually another story here. And on the next page, we start to tell it, uh, which is that where you play does matter. And so here we have again the of the uh, the sectors and uh, but within each of the sectors we show the distribution per firm from bottom quintile to top quintile and uh, with the triangles representing the uh, the world average uh, so this is where you can see that there is quite a span and that top quintile performers even in a value destroying sector such as energy materials are able to create economic profit and it's that skew that is the I would say, you know, the big, the big opportunity for Asia in the sense that as we see more people move, more firms moving to the top quintile, that creates the opportunity for the whole sector to move up. And that's true across every one of these sectors. You can see very, very substantial skew in uh, energy materials and uh, in financial services and, and knowledge intensive sectors as well. You can kind of get the sense for how many of the firms in that sector relatively speaking, are creating positive EP. And it's not, a, it's not an insubstantial number. Um, as you can see, in some sectors, even Asia outperforms, like financial services, um, again, perhaps driven mostly by regulation, but uh, also, but even in every other one, that you can see that even in the value-destroying sectors, there's a substantial share of firms that are generating positive economic profit. 
So uh, how are they doing that then? So like, what, and who are those firms showing that we divided the world to, to get a better sense for who is making money and who isn't, as you said, into the terrific and the trouble 200. Uh, and uh, again, for the trouble 200, it becomes fairly clear that the sector effect is dominating. And uh, apologies here, the, the, the labels are switched. That uh, We should uh, note that uh, in the legend that the blue is still good. Let me just put it that way. That the blue is is smaller for the trouble 200 than the black. But if we look at the, ter- the terrific 200, the blue and the black are basically equally uh, equally balanced, which means that within the terrific 200, somehow half of those companies have been able to get into the top 200 uh, overall, even though they were in a value destroying sector. Which is kind of the interesting thing about Asian companies is that even though you are facing headwinds, there is there is a way to succeed. We can start to see what are uh, some of those uh, things. First of all, those top companies are, generally speaking, new companies. That is one of the most important sort of things that characterize, we think, Asian leaders, is that they, they thrive on competition. But here what we look at is kind of the, the movement in the top quintile over a decade. So, you know, how many of the, those top quintile companies were uh, companies that were there a decade earlier? Uh, and how many of them were ones that had that had either dropped from the top or uh, were newly newly arising? In North America, 53% of the companies that were in the top in this current period in 2015 to 2017 were also in the top 10 years earlier. So there was a lot of incumbency. Whereas we look across Asia, that incumbency declined. That advanced Asia, China, emerging Asia, those companies that are in the top quintile. In this in 2015 to 2017, they were not there before, and so this this is a, Asia is a very very competitive environment, which means that you know you that's how they that's how we see Asia's growth driven by is that competition, and that that is a perhaps a standout characteristic of the environment in Asia that it supports and it forces outperformance by creating by creating turnover. Specifically, what are those firms doing? On the next page, that the ones that are actually beating the others in, uh, to climb up that greasy pole of eight to the top, well, first of all, they, they boldly re- reallocate resources. And again, I would say these are, this is particularly unique to Asia. It's just that what we see is a lot more aggressive pattern in Asia than elsewhere. And so these, these are some of the characteristics that Chris has notably pulled out uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in our, our work on the hockey, beyond the hockey stick, as the, the moves that make a difference. Uh, and so here we see that for Asian companies, uh, the top performers are 14% more dynamic in terms of the amount of capital expenditure that's reallocated across their business units, that uh, they definitely have a high rate of capital expenditure versus the industry, that they're aggressive on productivity, whether it's labor or SGNA, you know, relative to the industry, they're much more, they have much higher expectations for productivity improvement for their companies. And finally, differentiation. Um, that, in other words, their ability to develop and, and, and succeed in commercializing products that set themselves apart in the marketplace, um, that they also are, that, that is, a, they do that much more successfully than their non-top performing uh, counterparts. One last point is M&A, interestingly enough, at least so far, has not uh, been one of the factors that has differentiated those top performers. Um, that, that has not been a factor, but we think maybe going forward, this will become another lever uh, for those top performers uh, to to carry out. So that's the story. That uh, while across Asia at a sector level, we can see that there has been a allocation of capital or a, a usage of capital, particularly in sectors which are over which are value uh, destroying. 
that at the firm level, the market dynamic of competition has allowed a class of highly performing companies to rise to the top and to beat the sector average. And we think looking forward, that's actually the big story. So back to you, Patty. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. And maybe um, a couple questions. Building off of what you just mentioned, there have been a lot of companies that have been able to beat the odds of their sector, specifically within um, Southeast Asia. So maybe to Oliver, what is what are the oil and gas companies specifically doing in Southeast Asia that allow them to be profit generating um, versus the industry? Listen, I think uh, the la- la- that that decade I think was particularly good for Southeast Asia and oil and gas. Uh, I think that was a decade when oil and gas oil prices were still continued to to stay high ish, certainly compared to uh, what they are now. These are companies that have been focused on that. Uh, they have not diversified too much relative to some of the global companies. When I say diversified, I'm talking about you know, what part of their uh, their portfolio is into uh, into retail and into other other sectors. So that was turned out to be right for that uh, that period. They also have had assets that have been you know reasonably depreciated because you know remember we're talking about economic profit, which is over the cost of capital and what have you. So. You know, this has been a, the, the kind of the perfect period for them. And a big question is what happens going forward when we're now seeing a drive into renewable energy and so forth. So I think there are questions looking ahead. Thank you, Oliver. And now maybe over to Chris. If we put our investor cap on and look at the Asian market, what makes it so attractive and why are investors continually interested in Asia? Well, I think part of you know this increasing capitalization of the world faster than revenue just talks to the fact there's a lot of capital around. And that talks to bigger macro factors like globally extraordinarily low interest rates. And so there's, there are a whole lot of macro factors which I think talk to capital availability. Certainly when it comes to Asia, you have to differentiate between private capital and public capital. So public capital has different motivations and reasons, probably maybe a longer time horizon. And at least in Asia, a correlation with more investment in sectors with tough economics, where if you take China, the kind of part of China that's listed on the stock exchange and more has a private funding, the return on capital profile is really quite different and uh, not too different than the US. So we, we can see that you know importance of, of private capital in driving uh, capital allocation decisions. Now, I would note that when we look at an economic profit lens, that's today, when you buy a company, you're buying the next 50 years of economic profits as well. So one needs to understand that Asia has the, you know, there's a mega trend in Asia of a, an emerging large middle class, you know, increasingly prosperous societies with um, incredible panache for adopting technologies. So you got to remember the investors not just looking at today's profit, but also the outlook for the future. I think when you look at stock market multiples, what you see is that the stock market multiples in Asia are there, but actually the US has the best of both. So the US has good stock market multiples, I believe in growth going forward and excellent profitability today. Asia has profitability today that's quite challenged and moderately good um, multiples going forward. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. So maybe now we dive into the next chapter on building resilient firms. We've spent a lot of time talking about the client. I see a lot of the questions coming in and Q&A is now talking about how do we now move forward and how do we actually unlock the potential opportunity 
to create economic profit in Asia. When we looked at this, there were two key levers. And of course, being McKinsey, we had to do some sort of um, economic uh, outlook on this. So what, what we have here is that we did a simulation that looked at if we pull two levers, number one is improving individual firm performance, but number two is also then looking at how to, if we reallocate capital, what is the potential um, economic profit that we can unlock in the future? And what we found is that there's probably there's roughly around 440 billion to 620 billion being the large magnitude of profit that can be unlocked in the coming decade. Now, when you actually pull each of these levers and you break it down at a sector level, there are differences in which one will be more effective. For example, in knowledge intensive, as we saw and Jonathan alluded to, knowledge intensive sectors tend to be value creating globally. So for this sector, it's more about investing and doubling down in this sector um, versus in other sectors such as domestic services and energy materials. This is then more about improving individual firm performance. So why don't we spend the next uh, little while talking specifically and giving you some ideas about um, opportunities at the sector level. So the first sector that we're going to actually talk about is deep diving into the value uh, knowledge intensive PMP sector. So on the next page, what we have here is um, talking about PMP. So Asia today actually spends and accounts for 19% of global spending. It's actually the second largest um, pharmaceutical market in the world. But when you look at the economic profit Asian firms are able to capture, it is nearly 6%. And if you just take a step back and think about the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, um, Asia doesn't come up on that list. But our perspective here is that this will drastically change in the coming years. And there's a great opportunity for Asian firms within pharmaceuticals in two specific ways. The first way is more traditional. So what we see is China and Advanced Asia, which is largely Japan, have an opportunity to compete like a traditional PMP firm. This means doubling down on R&D and then also like the Biogenes or Innovent, really launching innovative drugs. Something that is even more exciting is if you actually look into areas such as Emerging Asia, which is largely ASEAN, and India, where their leading is actually in digital and new innovative ways to deliver care. And you would ask why, how is Asia or India able to lead in such a um, technology advanced or R&D intensive um, sector? Well, that's because within these developing countries, there's actually more pain points to solve. So for example, in India, what we see is that there's one doctor for every thousand citizens versus in the US, there's 2.9 um, doctors per 1,000. This then forces companies to be more innovative and potentially even leapfrog the traditional system in order to provide care for its citizens. And especially during the COVID-19 area, what we saw is the emergence of telehealth as well as uh, pharmaceutical, online pharmaceutical delivery really start to take root in a lot of these um, economies. And if we take a look now at the second sector, um, which is consumers, I'm sure everybody's heard of crazy rich Asians. And you've heard that, you know, Asia is going to drive um, consumer spending. And that is very much true. There's definitely the top percent that is going to drive luxury goods. But what's actually powering um, consumers in Asia is the growing middle class. 
And by 2040, we expect 40% um, of consumption globally to be in Asia. And today, within consumer goods, Asia already accounts for 40%. But they only like pharmaceuticals. They capture a very small percentage of economic profit. And what we see here as the opportunity is through there's four different kind of emerging archetypes of firms. And you might be very familiar with some of these. They're the unique clothes or the um, um, Japanese and Korean cosmetic brands that are becoming Asian multinationals. But there's also a growing ecosystem players like Alibaba, which are actually becoming a platform for a lot of the next generation um, rising kind of brands such as Feiyue or Gentle Monster. And a lot of this is actually is also supported by like a wave of Asian culture. You probably have heard of K-pop or K-dramas, Korean dramas also becoming very popular around young people. And with the globalization of culture, it's also helping Asian brands build their brand abroad. And especially during COVID time, what we saw is a lot of consumer trends like contactless consumption or digitalization become the norm. And these are very sticky trends that will continue on in non-COVID days as well. And the third sector we've spoke a little bit about already is around energy and materials. This is a highly cyclical um, industry. And because Asia actually is driving lots of demand, Asia today drives 44% of global energy and 70% of steel demand. Um, this has been a very important sector that's driven a lot of the decline over the last decade, especially given the end of the super cycle. But looking forward here, there is a lot of opportunity for Asia to unlock. Like Oliver alluded to, Asian companies are actually a spot within this cyclical industry. And where the opportunity here is in potentially renewables. And we already saw a lot of this happening in solar. So, for example, between 2010 and 2018, um, the price and the cost of solar PVC modules have dropped by 15%. And a lot of that accessibility is actually created and generated because of Asian firms and Asian demand. And other things such as electrif electrification is also going to be huge. China today is already the largest EV electric vehicle market in the world. And Korea is also committed to becoming a um, hydrogen economy. And all, a lot of these commitments to really drive more sustainable solutions is going to be a key area for Asia to play. Maybe switching gears and now talking a little bit about real estate. Um, I think real estate is a very interesting one because this is something um, we all have been spending a lot of time in. Uh, we've all been home. And what we see here is um, urbanization is going to be a continued driver of what makes real estate very attractive in Asia. By 2040, we expect nearly 3 billion urban population in Asia. And this is kind of the core group of people that will need to live in cities. And the way that they're living in cities are going to change, not just because of COVID, but because of a lot of underlining demographic changes. For example, there's going to be an increase in single-person homes, especially in uh, places like Japan and Korea. And this is a drastic change to how Asian culture used to be. Asian cultures are um, known to have big families. You have your grandparents and grandchildren, everybody living in one house. But then the switch to a more a different way of living is going to cause different demands and requirements on real estate. 
something that is kind of a, a rising trend because of COVID is also what you look for in your living space is now changing. With a shift towards working from home, your house becomes more than just a place where you sleep. There's requirements on making it a more work-appropriate space as well. And these changing preferences are all things that real estate companies will need to consider as they think about what their new um, services as well as products can be. And lastly, is a little bit on the financial sector. As Jonathan mentioned, um, when you look across the financial sector, there is varying uh, performance. And China actually does really well. This is one of China's highest performing sectors. Um, and Asia today is the largest regional banking market. However, we know that a return on equity has been declining, especially given COVID. But where we see Asia can really break through, and I'm sure um, many of you have already felt this and use this every day, is digital banking. Whether it's Alipay or WeBank or Paytm that's coming from India, this is also a place where Asia has completely leapfrogged the traditional infrastructure of Western societies and introduced new ways of connecting people. Um, so these are like a high level opportunities for Asian companies to think about. And now if I may move, we're gonna talk a little bit more about looking ahead. But before we go there, maybe a few questions to the panel. The first one would be to Jonathan. Jonathan, as you saw in kind of the sector stories, a lot of the opportunity is actually around growth. Um, it's around globalization and helping Asian firms scale. What do you think some of the challenges will be for Asian companies, especially given um, the current volatility in the market, as well as the geopolitical uh, situation? I think, Patty, that the growth challenge, first of all, is when we say globalization for Asian companies, the effort is still largely going to be first and foremost on Asia. So, because that's where the growth is. So maybe we're talking actually more about regionalization. And, uh, and so, and yeah, in that context, though, it's certainly challenging. I mean, that's, that's, that every has been, you know, we, there are many Asias. We've identified four of them. So from advanced Asia to emerging Asia to frontier Asia to China, they each have their unique uh, characteristics. And so I think that's the first challenge is that a company from emerging Asia will have, uh, have to address the, you know, and rethink its approach when it gets to advanced Asia or frontier Asia and, and so forth. So there's, there's certainly a challenge to rethink the model as one goes into these very different operating environments. The other challenge is, as I sort of mentioned before, is that in most of these, particularly the top, most of the top performing companies have relied much more on an organic growth model than in a, a bolt-on acquisitions or however you want to think about it, the inorganic approach. And so that will also be an effort. So it will you know, require a, a greater flexibility of approach, uh, more attention to alliances and to making those things work. We know from our own research that there is no inherent reason why an alliance or a partnership could not be as successful as a wholly owned entity, but it does take more work. <laughs> There's just more to do. So that, uh, whether it's governance or it's information systems, so those capabilities are also going to be the challenges for Asian companies as they regionalize and they, they move into the next level of their growth as top performing companies. Wonderful. Thank you, Jonathan. 
And I think a common question that is coming through our Q&A right now is how do we think about COVID during the, um, and co the effect of COVID on firms? So over to you, Chris, to talk about that. Fantastic. So what we're going to do here is just transition a bit from a backward-looking view based on economic profit to a forward-looking view based on what the capital markets are telling us. And as you know, capital markets are basically when they're repricing a stock are telling us what they think the future profitability of that stock is. So we can kind of derive what a future looking profit pool is. So the first point is, well, what's happening in, in, uh, in uh, capital markets? And the answer is, well, there's massive variation. So this chart looks a bit complex, but what it does is take all the sectors and uh, pull them apart. The X is the average of the sector. And you can see the difference of, you know, commercial aerospace at the bottom and, you know, healthcare supplies and distribution at the top is huge. Um, but we also showed how much variation is happening within the sectors, which is the, the bar, which goes from the 10th percentile to the 19th percentile, and the block, which goes from the 25th to the 75th. So just keep that in mind. There's, as the, you might have lots of different views about whether the overall capital market response is correct or overheated or optimistic, but there's a lot of information in the variance, in, that, in the slope of that curve. And, and, and it's very unusual to see that much difference in that short period of time between sectors. It's really useful information. And so how we've used that information is to infer, well, what is the actual uh, implied economic profits on the other side of this? So we've already, um, on this chart, we've gone from the story from the early 2000s to today. That was the whole point of the presentation. So we know the dotted line went from high economic profits down to zero. Um, and we also know from today's presentation that the kind of terrific top quintile lives in a very different world than the kind of troubled bottom quintile of economic profit. That's something we've established over a long period of time and we talk about a lot in our work on the power curve of economic profit. What this chart does is compare that time trajectory and then this number LTI at the end, that's the long-term implied profit by current market valuations. And here's the really surprising thing. Well, it's no surprise that overall valuations are saying the profit pool is going to shrink again by minus $352 billion. But what the real surprise is, it actually says the best companies are expected to get better. Um, and But it's the worst companies are expected to get a lot worse. And that's why we call this the great amplification. The astute among you might notice a slightly different pattern around the time of the global financial crisis where the top quintile also took a hit. And what we see in Asia, a similar pattern, we've already seen in Asia the more, tr the more difficult trajectory of economic profit. But the difference in Asia, I think, is the top quintile slightly less of a jump up. But I think that's about sector exposure and some of these mega winners um, in big tech, big pharma. And, but we also see in the bottom quintile some of the more difficult sectors like banks, real estate, kind of more exposure to those sectors in Asia. What's the so what of that? And I'll get there very quickly. Is Well, two things. First of all, it's this... The COVID is a is an unlocking, it's a release, not of new trends and forces, but a release of forces that have been pent up a long time. Think more like an earthquake. There's a fault line, there's pressure against it. This event happens and you get an explosive issue of force. And so we see from 2007 to 2017, quite a clear trend in which industries are losing economic profit and which ones are gaining. The surprising thing here is when you look at the implied profits, in the market, what the market is saying, hey, more of the same. There's no U-turns here. There's only acceleration. Next slide. But also within sect, uh, on oh, Asia is the same story, by the way, if not more, more exaggerated. So no different in Asia. Sorry, I will make one more point before that. We also looked within the sectors, and, and when you look within sectors, 
another factor happening is that the best companies in the sector are actually doing pretty well. So the top quintile of companies within a sector in half of the sectors are actually doing better, but in nearly every sector is doing a lot better than the bottom quintile is doing worse. So there's these two big distortionary, two big accelerators, two big amplifiers. One is difference between the sectors that are that were on the mega trend and not on the mega trend. That's increased. No new mega trends, just amplification, just acceleration. And within sectors, there's a big flight to quality. In fact, you can see when you look at the the firms and the groups of firms that are doing well at the top, they tend to have future-ready, resilient business models. And the firms within sectors that are are struggling tend to have more asset-intensive, more legacy-based business models. So we think that's a very important message coming out of COVID that it's not so much about one-off health crisis, but it's about quite a radical, dramatic acceleration and bring forward of the future in, in quite a shocking way. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. And then we're actually going to um, do a quick time check. We have about 10 minutes left. And then Oliver is going to close us off and we'll leave a couple minutes at the end for a few Q&A. What does all of this mean for companies across Asia? Now, this, this is difficult to summarize because it end up, ends up being at too high a level as opposed to for a particular sector, subsector in a particular country. But there are five things to point out, I think. I'm going to use slightly different language than what's on here. But Number one, talking about building a resilient firm for the 21st century. This is about the new ways of working, new business models. There's a premium on pace, a premium on innovation, a premium on collaboration. We talked about and we see the rise of ecosystems. We see the rise of platforms, you know, new, new ways of collaborating and competing at the same time. We see an increase in pace and importance of R&D. We see in Asia that there's an underspend on R&D. We didn't talk about it this time, but we do see that. So, this is around new ways of working, new business models. That is part of being resilient for the 21st century. Number two is leveraging technology to unlock productivity. I would even broaden that. It's technology, and we're seeing digital digitalization, especially during these COVID times. I'm sure you have seen the some of the research. It took in the U.S. It took 10 years to go from six to 16 percent of online retail penetration. And it took eight weeks ago from 16 to 26, 10% increase in 10 weeks that previously took 10 years. We're seeing that everywhere, also in Asia. So leveraging technology, digital to unlock productivity, new ways of reaching your customers. The third one is bolder portfolio moves, but even before that, portfolio assessments. Are your businesses, your sub-segments future-proof? Because there's a, there are several trends, and we saw what Chris presented is that many of the trends we've seen for a long time are being amplified and accelerated these these days. So therefore, what does that mean for your capital allocation? How do you find those pockets of, of growth going forward? The fourth one is around, I would call it more broadly, organizational uh, agility, maintaining momentum, the agility. How does your structure change? How do you keep decision-making? One of the things that we've seen in the last few months is the speed of decision-making, I think, across all companies, all countries, has really picked up. Uh, how do you maintain that speed of decision-making and the agility? How do you build the skills, the modern skills that are required to deliver on the technology, the digital, and what have you that we, we just talked about? And then finally, the build plan ahead teams. This is around how do you deal with some of that uncertainty, the scenarios that my colleague Chris Bradley on here has a beautiful quote that I've heard him say. 
this COVID era is like we're in the middle of a, of a long, dark tunnel. We do not know how long that tunnel is, and we do not know what it looks like on the other side of that tunnel. That has pretty profound implications for businesses, for companies. So setting up scenarios, knowing what the trigger points are when you act so that you know that you're going this way instead of that way. And what used to be done in, a, in yearly budgets is now quarterly budgets. So just the whole way of planning ahead and the whole way of managing the company changes. So these, these are five implications that we see for, for companies that are summarized at a high level. Thank you. Awesome. Back to you, Patty. Thank you all. Awesome. Thank you, Oliver. Maybe before we dive into a few more Q&As, let me answer a few questions we got. The first one around domestic services. What we mean by domestic services is actually an inclusion of sectors such as utilities, construction, real estate, um, a lot of uh, or transportation, and that we've grouped together into domestic services. Another question here is, as we were presenting the sector story, we talked a lot about how Asia often accounts for a huge portion of demand, but a small portion of the economic profit. There are varying uh, reasons to why each sector, this occurs in each sector. For example, in consumer goods, it's the lack of representation, the majority and the focus on domestic, domestic markets. For example, you have within Asia, you have a lot of big foreign companies also coming in um, Asia and making their profit and their fortune on Asian um, demand, but that uh, profit is then allocated back to their North American or European headquarters. Um, now, maybe a question over to Oliver. We've talked a lot about kind of economic profit, um, but as we're moving into this new age and even as COVID has kind of um, showcased, it, running a firm in the future is a lot more than profitability. How does purpose and other factors play into, into play here? Thank you. That is an extremely important question and comment, Patty. I do think we have now focused on economic profit. I do think that what we've seen in the last two years is that the broader topic, broader purpose is as important, becoming as important. We've seen that it's a global phenomenon. We've seen that here in Asia. Uh, we've seen an awakening on sustainability for those of you that were in Davos this year. You know, the by far most discussed topic was sustainability. Now, there's been a shift in talking about it to actually companies wanting to drive for impact on sustainability. And it's coming from consumers. It's coming from employees in the companies and it's coming from investors. So I think the broader topic of purpose is very important. Sustainability is one part of it. COVID was another awakening, and we've seen now that all parties, all companies need to chip in and lead from the front in the fight against COVID and in the economic recovery. That's another flavor of, of purpose. And I think now, over the last couple of weeks, we've also seen that companies are expected to play a more active role in the fight against discrimination. So I think... Purpose has come to stay as something that is even more important than it was historically for companies. I would say that many companies that I know, I serve across Asia, actually have been on broader purpose for quite some time. So I'm, I'm happy to see that this is now becoming a global phenomenon. Wonderful. Thank you, Oliver. And maybe to close us off here, Jonathan, we've talked a lot about 
corporations. But what can policymakers um, do to also help to accelerate the growth of Asian firms? Well, I think uh, one of the big lessons, again, as evidenced in, in COVID as well, is the capacity of governments to work cooperatively with the private sector. So to this sector, this time around, it was very clear that the private sector stepped up but to respond to what was a social and societal challenge. But that was enabled by an effective collaboration with the public sector. So governments, I think, and policymakers obviously should, in that sense, you know, continue to have high expectations of the economic performance of their private sectors and to, uh, if you will, you know, hold them to account in that sense. Sort of like oh, we're keeping the pressure on of competitive intensity that's led to top firms in Asia growing and being successful while ensuring that they, the environment in which the uh, firms compete is, is supportive of those top firms, of those competitive firms rising to the top. So, you know, providing and investing in human capital, uh, ensuring that these long-term investments, the through cycle infrastructure that needs to be built is, uh, is put in place, and uh, providing access to marketplaces, of course, across Asia, so that uh, top-performing firms can, can, can grow and mobilize and introduce innovations uh, to all of those literally hundreds of millions of Asian consumers and, uh, and companies waiting for, waiting for improvements and, you know, and hungry, hungry for new products and services. So that's, uh, you know, in a sense, it's a, it's, a new, it's a continuation of the same policies, but just brought forward into this new uh, post-COVID context. Wonderful. Thank you, Jonathan. And I believe we are right on time. So thank you, everybody, for joining us from around the world across different time zones today to talk about the performance and decoding of Asian corporates. And thank you, panelists, for joining us today as well. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. <laughs>